0: church into this building on this three-day weekend. It is awesome to see people. Um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um, if if this is your first Sunday with us or you've been away for the past few weeks, uh, we're currently in the heart of a five week sermon series entitled Cross Point Together. In fact, this is week three, so we're in the, the dead center of this thing. A vision casting series, not Not only meant to get at the heart of what we're after as a church, but also to to help us get an idea of the cultural air that you and I breathe and the impact that it has on our lives. So we began this series with with the following simple yet profound statement a couple weeks ago. The statement is this, everyone everywhere is being discipled. Say that again, everyone everywhere is being discipled. The question isn't, are you a disciple? The question is, who or what are you a disciple of? Put another way, everyone is a follower of a particular vision of the good life. We all live in a particular place at a particular time in human history, and this place and time are not neutral at all. There are competing visions of what Jesus would define as the good life and what the surrounding culture would define as the good life. And we have a choice to make. We can can choose to listen to Jesus, or we can listen to all of those competing voices that call us to follow I shared this quote a couple weeks ago, probably share it for the entirety of this series. Joe Rigney, professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary up in Minneapolis, says this. He says, we are always becoming who we will be. We are all of us in storied creatures living our lives in a narrative, which means our lives have directions, trends, and trajectories. Right this minute, he says, we are headed somewhere, and sooner or later, we are bound to end up there. Everyone everywhere is being discipled. Each and every one of us are disciples of a particular vision of the good life. And the question that begs to be answered is this. Would would Jesus agree with your definition, with my definition of the good life? As followers of Jesus, if that's you, it's incumbent upon us to take our cues from Jesus, to look to Jesus and how he describes the good life instead of taking our cues from the culture that surrounds us. The tension between these competing visions of the good life and the narrative surrounding them is what I've referred to for the past two weeks as the contested space. I don't know if you realize this or not. I've been talking about it for the past couple weeks. So if you've been here, you've heard this. But you and I just might live in the most contested space that the world has ever known. The perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. Beckoning us with the same words Jesus spoke to his disciples. Follow me. The voice of moralism calls us to a life of performance in an effort to earn God's favor and love. It's a nasty, vicious monster that's been lurking around the Bible belt for years, declaring there are good guys and there are bad guys, and God loves the good guys, so be a good guy and God will love you. The monster of moralism loves to watch you dance between the two extremes of pride and despair. Pride when you think you're doing enough to impress God and despair when you feel like you're failing. And then there's the cultural giant of suburbanism. I won't call suburbanism a monster because unlike moralism, suburbia can be redeemed. But I will call suburbanism quite possibly the greatest cultural giant standing in the way of the gospel in our context. Again, another quote that I've shared the last couple of weeks. Jared Wilson, in his book, the, the Imperfect Disciple, he says, I think the spirit at work in the suburbs tends to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs in a nutshell is self-empowerment. Self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, self Self is at the center and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. Or again, as my friend Ross Lester said about a month ago at a church planter's gathering, he said, you have to fight hard for genuine community in places that revolve around the cult of the standalone nuclear family unit. You have to preach and believe the scandalous gospel of grace in environments designed around performance and self-help. You have to remind people of God's great mission and their place in it in the midst of routines, school runs, commutes, and survival. Again, we, we live in perhaps the most contested space the world's ever known, the perfect cultural cocktail of moralism and suburbanism. These voices, they call out to us, inviting us to live lives of suppression distraction, isolation, and and consumption, Jesus offers us something better. Jesus offers us the opportunity to live lives of celebration, connection, community, and contribution. And that's what we're talking about in this series, these four gospel rhythms that you see on the right side of this screen. Last week, we talked about the first of those, the rhythm of celebration, what it means to be a spirit-filled, celebratory, proclaiming people, We have every reason to be the most celebratory people on planet Earth. A rowdy bunch, as I said last week. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've gone from spiritual orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity to beloved children of God. If you're a Christian, that's you. We're part of a divine drama that involves a God who not only creates, but makes himself known to his creation. A God who willingly became a character in his own story in order to rescue the very ones who rebelled against him. A God who heals, a God who resurrects, a God who cares, a God who believes in happily ever afters. That's the gospel story that you and I are invited to celebrate. Last week we talked about how this rhythm of celebration is infused into our strategy as a church. And so I walked us through some examples of how this rhythm of celebration plays out in the context of our Sunday gatherings, our community groups, and our gospel alliance type environments. If that language or that graphic for that matter um, is new to you. I'll make more sense of that in just a few moments. Last week, we we also exposed those competing, competing voices that call out to us in the midst of the contested space, those voices that invite us into what they declare to be a life of celebration, but what's really a life of suppression. And if you weren't here last week, I, I would encourage you big time, go online, check out last week's sermon. There, there's so many people in our context who believe that they're living their lives according to the gospel story, but who have oriented their lives around a very different storyline, I would argue. This morning, I want to move into the second of these four gospel rhythms, the rhythm of connection, which might, quite possibly might be the most confusing of the four. And so I'm going to attempt to make sense of what we mean when we use that word around here. And I want to show you how, uh, how to fight to live out this rhythm for, for God's glory and your joy, what that can actually look like. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 37 through 41 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you have a translation that's maybe difficult to understand, please take that Bible as the churches give to you. Happy Labor Day. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll get going. Spirit of God, we need you desperately this morning. We live in a context in which many of us understand the language of Jesus dying to save sinners, going back to last week, this redemptive historical narrative with Jesus as the hero, this, this glorious story that we celebrate that's so much bigger than us. But there are many in our context who struggle to understand how the gospel actually applies in the everyday rhythms of life, what it means to live and breathe the air of the gospel daily. And that's what we're going after this morning. And so, Spirit of God, we need you. Would you help us to see things in ourselves that we have yet to see? Would you help us to see our deep need for the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives today? Would you help us to be a people who grows in gospel fluency And that as a result, that we would experience greater, deeper, more consistent and rhythmic joy in our lives, God. Would you do that? Holy Spirit, would you create gospel awakenings in each of our hearts? Would you cause us light bulbs to go off that have never gone off before this morning for your glory and the joy of your people? ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we we went back in time to the day of Pentecost, the day on which the Holy Spirit came in power, unifying God's people to proclaim his mighty works. We, We encountered one of the best sermons Peter probably ever preached as he argued from the scriptures that the outpouring of the Spirit of God has everything to do with the finished work of the Son of God. Peter tells of the humanity of Jesus, the God of the universe stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, thus fully man. Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of human history. Again, the author became a character in his very story. Peter tells of the ministry and miracles of Jesus, the power of God on display through casting out of demons, healing of the sick, raising of the dead. And not just his mighty works, but his words. Jesus claimed to be the son of God, the embodiment of truth, the only hope for salvation. Peter tells of the crucifixion of Jesus, the shameful criminal's death that he died in the place of sinners like you and me. The death that we deserve to die as our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. Peter tells of the resurrection of Jesus, his bursting forth from the grave in triumph, slaying the darkened dragons of Satan, sin and death. And finally, Peter tells of the ascension and second coming of Jesus, his departure to the right hand of the Father, where he sits as exalted high priest and triumphant king of the universe until he returns to make everything sad, untrue for those who trust in him for salvation. I said this last week, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus Christ is the confession of the church. The person and work of Jesus is the reason we have any hope of celebrating this morning. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus around here. Coming back to the final words of that sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter two, verse 36, it says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He he brings a mega church sized crowd face to face with the centrality of the gospel and listen to how the people respond. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here you have Peter preaching of the supremacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you have a group of people cut to the heart by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, repenting, receiving Peter's words, i.e. the gospel, 3,000 conversions, 3,000 baptisms. Can you imagine that? We would have been out on the front lawn a couple of weeks ago till the wee hours of the morning. Which would have been cool, by the way. Notice the, uh, notice the contextualizing of the gospel for this particular crowd. Notice that Peter, with a predominantly Jewish crowd, takes them back to the Old Testament to attempt to make sense of the gospel in their lives. He takes them back to the book of Joel. He takes them back to Psalm 16. Notice if you fast forward through the book of Acts, you see the Apostle Paul doing things very differently at times. In Acts chapter 17, you see Paul quoting the poets in order to attempt to make sense of the gospel. That even at the moment of our conversion at times, we need the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ to be contextualized in a way that makes sense to us. Let me, let me give you an example of how this has worked in my life growing up. I grew up in the Bible Belt like many of you. And so throughout the course of my adolescence, I remember hearing about how I'm a guilty sinner in need of a Savior who will rescue me from a cosmic judge of the universe who I cannot stand before and and hope to have any hope. And and though that is true, it never resonated with me because the issue of guilt was not one of the biggest issues on the table for me as it pertained to the gospel. It was actually at, at some point along the way when someone presented me with the doctrine of adoption The idea that that this God, through Jesus Christ, would rescue me into a family in which I could become a a beloved child of the capital F, Father of the Universe. Now, here's why that matters deeply to me and why it was a bridge to helping me believe the gospel for the first time. Is because my dad checked out when I was a little boy. He left, divorced my mom, walked away, and... I've had a socially awkward relationship with him for roughly 30 years since. And so I grew up wrestling with this question of, could there there be a God who could love me as I'm trying to work through the fact that my dad walked out on me? Am I lovable at all? And and trying to work through this idea of God as a father in the midst of what I grew up in. And so it wasn't until I, I was presented with the doctrine of adoption, this beautiful doctrine that says that That there is a God who is a good father and who through Jesus Christ would rescue me out of the dumpsters of depravity and give me a home and a family. That's a big deal for me. And in light of engaging the doctrine of adoption, I began to readily embrace all the other beautiful doctrines that flow from the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all very different. And so it's very likely that when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, it was because someone presented the unchanging gospel to you in a way that made sense in light of your story, in light of who you are, in light of what you've grown up with, in light of what you've gone through. Now, here's the question I think we have to grapple with. Does this being cut to the heart that you encounter in Acts chapter 2, does this repenting when coming face to face with the centrality of the gospel, does this happen at the moment of our conversion never to happen again? Some see the Christian life this way. Some see the gospel as nothing more than the the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity, a means of being saved from hell and set up for the afterlife with no implications for everyday living. But that's not the Christian life. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church at the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, he said this, the first of those theses. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That the Christian life is is a life of ongoing repentance in which we're cut to the heart over and over and over again. The same Holy Spirit who cuts us to the heart at the moment of our conversion now indwells us. Another way we could say it is this. Trusting in the person and work of Jesus is not a one-time experience but the heart and substance of Christianity. Let me say that again. Trusting in the person and work of Jesus is not a one-time experience, but the heart and substance of Christianity. The gospel has implications for every moment of life. And I hope by the time we get done this morning, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you begin to see exactly what I'm talking about. Let me, let me come back to these four gospel rhythms that we're walking through in this series. And let me explain the connection rhythm in light of the rest of these rhythms, because I think it can get confused. There are a lot of ways we use the word connection Uh, Sometimes we use it in in thinking about our relationships with other people. Sometimes we use it as the church gathers on Sunday as a way of talking about the language of assimilation, helping to connect people into this body, into the life of the church. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about it as a gospel rhythm. Last week, if I could simplify it, last week we talked about the rhythm of celebration, which is the gospel story at large. it's, It's this beautiful story that God is the author of, that he became a character in, this story in which God creates, he reveals himself, he stoops down, he rescues, he heals, he cares, he establishes happily ever afters. It, that, that's, that's a general way of understanding the gospel story. And we celebrate that. The rhythm of connection is where we talk about the gospel in me. And we we begin to wrestle with the implications of the gospel in our own lives individually and uniquely. Next week when we come back, we'll talk about the rhythm of community, the gospel with us, that our stories are, are knit to one another as the church under the banner of this big story of redemption. And then lastly, we'll talk about the rhythm of contribution, the gospel to others and what it looks like to, to turn the gospel outward, to serve others, to give our lives as a ransom for them. So again, when we talk about the connection rhythm, we're talking about the gospel in you. We're talking about how the gospel matters in light of your unique past. We're talking about how the gospel matters in light of your unique struggles with sin and unbelief. We're talking about how the gospel matters in light of the unique ways that you battle the attacks of the enemy. We're talking about how the gospel matters in light of the unique things that you come face to face with circumstantially in life. In other words, we're talking about connecting your story to the bigger gospel story that we talked about last week. We're talking about the gospel applied you might say. Anybody ever seen this graphic before? Little thing called the Myers-Briggs test, right? We've all, we've all taken tests like this, right? Some of them are very credible. Some of you, you've never gone down that road, but you've taken the test to see which friend's character you are or, or which member of the breakfast club you are, right? Am I Joey? Am I Chandler? Which one am I? Can I be Monica as a guy? Is that even possible? And, and you care, Right? You care about the results. We do these things. We take these kind of tests. This one may be a little bit more credible. The Myers-Briggs tests can tell you a little bit of something of who you are. One way to consider what we're going after this morning is to, to think of it as a sort of how the gospel matters to you version of the Myers-Briggs. Okay? You can think in that kind of terminology. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I'm going to walk you through some handles this morning for understanding yourself better. Some of you, maybe you've heard of the word exegete before. To exegete a passage of scripture is simply to extract, to draw out of the Bible what's there rather than reading into the Bible our circumstances, our experiences. And so good biblical exegesis is drawing out of the scriptures what's actually there. Let me say it this way as it pertains to this morning. I know a lot of people who have spent their lives exegeting their Bibles who have rarely, if ever, exegeted themselves. A life spent drawing out of Scripture what's there, but never drawing out of ourselves what's there. And thus, we miss the beauty of the gospel in the everyday rhythms of life because we don't know how the gospel speaks into our lives particularly and uniquely. The connection rhythm. So I wanna do that for, for just a few minutes. To draw out of ourselves what's there. The gospel fluency version of the Myers-Briggs. We take notes on the scriptures all the time around here. I wanna invite you to take the next few moments to take some notes on yourself and see what God might do in that. So here we go, just some handles. Kinda like your Myers-Briggs gives you the, the E versus I, the S versus N, the T versus F, the J versus P. That's kinda where we're going. Let me give you some handles for understanding you a little bit better one of the ways that we can go after it is to talk about the ways that we shrink the cross, the ways that we minimize sin in our lives. This, this shows us that we're very different from one another because we all do this differently. I'll just walk you briefly through a list of ways that we do that. Some of us, we defend. The declaration of those who defend is, I find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin, When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, talk about my successes, or to justify my decisions. As a result, I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. Some of us pretend. The pretenders declare, I strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectable image. My behavior to some degree is driven by what I think others think of me. I also do not like to think reflectively about my life. As a result, not very many people know the real me. I may not even know the real me. And then there are those who hide. The declaration of of those who hide is, I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life, especially the quote-unquote bad stuff. This is different from pretending in that pretending is about impressing. Hiding is more about shame. I don't think people will accept the real me. And then there are those who blame shift, like our first parents in the garden As Adam declares, Eve made me do it. And Eve declares, the serpent made me do it. If I can just pass the buck any way I possibly can. Those who minimize sin by blaming declare, I'm quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contributions to sin or conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes it's not my fault and or an element of fear of rejection if it is my fault. Then there's downplaying, which says, I tend to downplay or circumstances in my life as if they are normal or not that bad. As a result, things often don't get the attention they deserve and have a way of mounting up to being overwhelming. And then there's exaggerating, which says, I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to. I make things good and bad out to be much bigger than they are, usually to get attention. As a result, things often get more attention than they deserve and have a way of making me stressed, Or anxious. When you think about that list, what what does that look like in your own life? What does minimizing sin look like for you personally? In other words, in, in which of these ways are you most likely to shrink the cross, so to speak? And already the room has become unique because we could divide ourselves into six categories and there are probably more just with respect to this one handle on understanding how the gospel works in our lives. Another way that we're very different from one another is in regard to what I'll call the Jesus plus formula in our lives. We embark on self-salvation projects when we fail to see Jesus as our only hope of redemption. It's not that we don't think Jesus is our savior. It's that we think we need Jesus plus something else in order to find validation and satisfaction. And the danger is that something else tends to become a functional savior for us. And it's either oftentimes ourselves or an idol. That something else attempts to displace Jesus as our ultimate redeemer. That something else becomes our functional source of righteousness, you might say, and satisfaction apart from Jesus. It's it's adding to what Jesus has done on the cross. When we're not resting in the righteousness that comes from God in the gospel, we will make something our functional source of righteousness. We will trust that person or thing rather than Jesus to build our reputation and give us a sense of worth, a sense of value, let me just give you a, a handful of examples. All right, there's job righteousness, which declares God helps those who help themselves. If I, I, if I work hard, God will reward me. There's family righteousness. If I just do things right as a parent, I will be accepted by God, others, and myself. There's theological righteousness. I have good theology. Of course God is pleased with me. There's intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. There's schedule righteousness, which declares I am self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management. Thus, God is pleased with my stewardship of time. There's flexibility righteousness, which is on the other end of the spectrum and declares in a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed, man. I always have time for others. God appreciates my laid back demeanor. There's mercy righteousness. I care more about the poor and disadvantaged than other people, and this makes me better in the eyes of God. There's legalistic righteousness, which says, I don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. God is pleased with my moral convictions. There's financial righteousness, which says, I manage money wisely and stay out of debt, so God must think highly of me. There's political righteousness, which says, if you really love love God, you'll vote for my candidate. There's tolerance righteousness, which says, I am open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. We're, We're talking about anything that gives a sense of being good enough or better than others. These sources of functional righteousness, they disconnect us from the power of the gospel. They allow us to find righteousness in what we do instead of honestly confronting the depth of our sin and brokenness. And furthermore... Each of these sources of righteousness is also a way of judging and excluding other people at the heart. When we rely on them, we implicitly elevate ourselves and condemn those who aren't as righteous, quote unquote, as us. In other words, finding righteousness in these things leads into more sin, not less. Let me give you another handle Another of the ways that we're different from one another is in regard to the good things that we make ultimate in our lives. We were created to worship. And what that means is that we will either worship the uncreated God or we will worship some created person or thing. We can't help ourselves. We cannot eliminate God without creating God's substitutes. Idolatry is not some rare sin among primitive people. As Calvin said, the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We just pump one after another out. And by the way, whatever we worship, we will serve, for worship and service are inextricably bound together always. Let me give you some helpful questions to ask in identifying idols in your life. And these are just a handful of questions. There are more that we could wrestle with. Here are just a few. What is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about most? What what if I failed at it or lost it would cause me to feel as though I do not want to live anymore? What keeps me going? What do I rely upon or comfort myself with when things go bad or get difficult? What do I think most easily about? What does my mind go to when I am free? What preoccupies me? What prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What makes me feel the most self-worth of what am I most proud in life? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? I think sitting with these kind of questions this week could be one of the greatest homework assignments that we've ever done as a church. What are some common themes that you see as you, as you sit with these types of questions? What things tend to be too important in life? Let's do this. Let me give some possible answers, some possible surface idols. These are the things that are, that are a little bit more visible. They're above the dirt. We can see them in one another's lives if we were willing to have an honest moment and dialogue about it. Here we go. This is just a small list again. There's helping idolatry, which says, Life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. There's dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. There's independence idolatry which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. There's there's work idolatry which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm highly productive, if I'm getting a lot done. There's achievement idolatry, which says life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm recognized for my accomplishments or if I'm excelling in my career. There's materialism idolatry, which says life only has meaning, I only have worth if I I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. There's religion or ministry idolatry, which says, Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and, and am accomplished in its activities, ministerially speaking. A lot of pastors commit that one, by the way, ministry idolatry. There's irreligion idolatry, which says, Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion with, all, with a self-made morality. There's individual person idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if this one person is in my life and is happy there and or happy with me. There's racial or cultural idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. And we're not just talking about ethnicity here. We're talking about this haughtiness of the suburbs are better than the inner city. No, the inner city is where it's at. No, the rural farm towns, that's where it's at, brother. That's cultural idolatry. There's inner ring idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if a particular social grouping, professional grouping, or other group lets me in. There's family idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or parents are happy and happy with me. There's relationship idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. There's suffering idolatry, which says life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm hurting or experiencing problems because only then do I feel noble and worthy of love. Only then am I able to deal with guilt. There's ideology idolatry. That's a hard one to say. Which says, life only has meaning, I only have worth if my political or social cause or party is making progress and ascending in influence or power. And lastly, but not exhaustively to the list, there's image idolatry, which says, life only has meaning, I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. And on and on and on we could go. And and here's the crazy thing, that's just the stuff on the surface, That's just the stuff that we see. Those are the more concrete and and specific objects and subjects above the dirt, so to speak. Spouse, career, possessions, good things that we make ultimate because those good things are attached to deeper heart-level motivational drives. What we refer to around here as root idols, those things below the dirt. Things like approval, comfort, power, control, They tend to work through those surface idols. Approval is all all about love. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Power has to do with status. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over other people. Comfort has to do with freedom. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. Control has to do with security. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the areas of, and you just fill in the blank with whatever that is. You begin to see how the dots start to connect from root to surface. If you, if you struggle with a root idol of approval, it can manifest itself in a surface idol of just about anything. Let, let, me, let me explain how this works. Let me give a couple of examples, okay? Image idolatry at the surface can be driven by a root idol of approval. I must be loved and respected by blank, and thus I must have a particular kind of look. The overemphasis on image is what we all see, while the deeply rooted approval idol may go unnoticed. Now let me give you another one. Family idolatry at the surface can be driven by that same root idol of approval. I must be loved and respected by blank, and thus I must be recognized for my good parenting. The overemphasis on good parenting, that's what we all see while the deeply rooted approval idol may go unnoticed. Now let's come back to that same surface idol of family and connect it to a different root idol. Family idolatry at the surface can also be driven not just by a root idol of approval, but a root idol of control. I must be able to get mastery over my life with respect to my kids and thus. You see how it works? We're all very different from one another. Let me give you one final handle on understanding how the human heart works with respect to religion, irreligion, and the gospel. One more example of how we're all very different from one another. For some of us, when we're not believing the gospel, we tend to revert to religion, to moralism. I trust in my own ability to obey God and be accepted by him. For others of us, when we're not believing the gospel, we tend to revert to irreligion, relativism. I decide my own truth and meaning inside, uh, in this world, outside of God. A a good way to understand how how your heart works here is to go read the, the story of the prodigal son, or what I would call the story of the two lost sons, because you have the younger irreligious brother who went and squandered all of his father's inheritance in Vegas, essentially, And then you have the older religious brother who stayed really close to daddy's hip and did everything he was supposed to do in terms of checking all the boxes and got angry when dad threw a party for the younger irreligious brother who found his way home by God's grace. Both are lost and both are the default of the human heart depending on where you are at any given moment. There are times that I find myself going, God, I wish you would have included in that parable someone who looked like both, kind of infused into one person and showed me that the father could love them too. Because I'm religious and irreligious at the same time when I'm not believing the gospel. It's kind of sick. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're that person. You're like, couldn't we have had a third son that was a little bit more jacked up than the two that are in the parable? Because that's me. Now I'm going to do something really crazy. Let me give you my Myers-Briggs results, spiritually speaking. If I had to assess myself today, here's what my results would look like. And they would probably be different tomorrow because we are not static characters in this redemptive story. We're dynamic changing characters every day. Even every moment you could argue these results could look different. We're human beings after all. So here you go. Here's my spiritual Myers-Briggs test results. As it pertains to minimizing sin, I'm a defender and a blamer. You can ask my wife. I can lawyer the best of them in order to get myself off the hook, I will defend myself to the grave. and, and, And I will blame anybody and everybody so that I don't have to stare my own sin in the face. That's me. Nice to meet you if we haven't met yet. As it pertains to functional saviors, theological and intellectual righteousness are my vices. And so I really like to believe that it's Jesus plus all of the theology books that I've read that are sitting in my study. And if I'm honest, I want you to see them. I want you to come by my house sometime and look at all the books I own. As it pertains to surface idols, achievement and image idolatry are high up on the list for me. I want to achieve. I want to succeed. I want to be seen a certain way by people. And you begin to see how it works when you see the root idol that makes its way into my results. The root idol of approval. I care deeply about what people think about me. Now here's the crazy thing. In everything that we've just gone over in the last 20 minutes or so, here's what didn't come up. The fact that my dad did walk out on me when I was a kid, that I've always felt like I didn't measure up. I mean he must have walked out for a reason, right? What what also didn't come to play in this is how the devil attacks me uniquely. Go read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters and, and have your eyes open to the fact that Satan and his army of darkness loves to attack in very unique form-fitted ways. We haven't even gone there this morning you want to go there go back to the everyday gospel series and listen to a sermon entitled prone to Wander," and you'll begin to see even more of what we're talking about in its fullness what you see on that screen is the diagnostic part of the connection rhythm it's knowing ourselves better so that we can connect our unique stories to the bigger gospel story that we celebrated last week so how does the gospel speak into what you see up on that screen well The gospel declares that I've got all the approval that I could ever want or need in Jesus Christ. I'm God's beloved son with whom he's well pleased. I've been brought out of the dumpsters of depravity and adopted into the home of a loving father, as I said before. Not because I've impressed him or anyone else with my achievements in life. Not because I've impressed him or anyone else with my image. There's no amount of plaid in the world to impress God. There's no pair of vans that's cool enough to impress the divine. There just isn't. I'm God's beloved son with whom he's well-pleased. Not because I've read through a systematic theology book or two from cover to cover. Not because I know big words like hermeneutics and eschatology. I'm God's beloved son with whom he's well-pleased because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. And he said it is finished. Jesus lived the life I could never live. An impressive, sinless life. Jesus died the death that I deserve to die. A criminal's death. Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteous record, and thus God can look at me and declare me his beloved son, and I can call him a father. That's the gospel rhythm of connection. That's what we mean when we throw around that word. It's the gospel in me. It's the gospel in you. That's what we're after as a church. We're all unique. We all have unique pasts that we bring to the table, unique struggles with indwelling sin and unbelief. Unique battles with the enemy. Unique challenges that we face in life circumstantially. And the gospel speaks into every one of those things in unique ways. What joy to be a church who knows ourselves and one another. And not just for the sake of championing some value of authenticity and transparency. The millennial church is going to be the one who just talks about all their sin and never addresses that sin in light of the gospel. That's what we're after. The experience of the transforming power In our lives daily. The the gospel's power. Now now here. Let me come back to this strategy. And if you haven't been around. For the last couple weeks. We're really after three environments. That we want you to be infused into. This one small groups that we gather with throughout the city throughout the week on a particular night of the week and then even smaller form-fitted intentional relationships with gospel intentionality as the heart of those relationships. If you want to learn more about what I mean by that, let's meet up, let's talk, go listen to the sermons from the last couple weeks and and you'll you'll see layers of of clarity attempting to connect the dots there. But in or, in order to understand how this works, this rhythm of of connection. Think about this. How in the world could we accomplish everything that I just talked about in each and every one of your lives here and here alone on Sunday mornings? You'll notice that I regularly attempt in sermons to give examples of how the gospel works on the ground. Sometimes it's through the unpacking of how root and surface idols work. Sometimes it's through unpacking the difference between religion, irreligion, and the gospel. Sometimes it's through the pointing out of those things that we look to for identity apart from and in addition to Jesus. But in in terms of a Sunday gathering like this, we can only get so specific, right? I would have to give 70 to 100 examples in order to hit every one of you between the eyes and meet you where you are. But in a community group, there's room to explore the way the gospel applies in each and every one of our lives. But even in that context, we can only get so far in a couple of hours with roughly a dozen people sharing. There's only so far we can get in really teasing out the intricate details of our stories and how the gospel applies And thus the need to get even more intentional in smaller relational environments with gospel intentionality at the heart of them. And so the hope is that you would engage in in all three of these environments with a willingness to do the homework on yourself and let other people speak into your blind spots. And that you would more and more see how the gospel matters in very unique, form-fitted ways in your life. And that as a result, you would more and more experience the present tense power of the gospel in your life. Now let's be honest. Everything we're talking about this morning is a little strange in our cultural context. I mean, honestly, like when was the last time that that you heard a pastor get up and share his present tense ugliness? Everything that we're talking about this morning is a little strange in our context, in this Bible Belt context that we live in. Very few people, let me say it this way, very few people get jazzed about being cut to the heart as an ongoing way of life. Right? And thus, very few people know what it's like to experience the healing bomb of the gospel as an ongoing way of life. Coming back to this idea of the contested space, let, let me just share for a brief moment what we're up against. If you think in terms of those two competing voices of moralism and suburbanism that I talked about earlier, moralism is an enemy of the rhythm of connection because it calls us to behavior modification rather than gospel transformation. Moralism calls us to fix our attention on changing the external rather than dealing with the internal. And so you could say that moralism doesn't take the rhythm of connection deep enough below the dirt in our lives. Suburbanism, on the other hand, is a barrier to the rhythm of connection because it distracts us from slowing down long enough to consider the implications of the gospel in the rhythms of the everyday life. In suburbia, it's not that people don't go deep enough with with the connection rhythm. It's that people rarely experience the connection rhythm at all. Suburbia offers us the perfect cultural excuse to do everything we can to keep from being cut to the heart. We're just so busy. We're just so distracted by a dozen different things at any given moment. And if we're honest, we're happy to be busy and distracted all the time. Self reflection, even in the name of growth in the gospel, can be terrifying. What if you really knew yourself? What if you really knew what made you tick? What if you really knew how your past is shaping the way you think, feel, and make decisions in the present? What if you really knew what the yet-to-be-sanctified parts of you really look like? Right, Netflix, man, that's a blessing. Electronic devices, those are a blessing. Our kids' extracurriculars, those are a blessing. They keep us from having to slow down long enough to sit with ourselves. And to be crystal clear, demonizing Netflix is not the answer nor is demonizing our electronic devices or our kids' extracurriculars. We're so good at running from those silent moments of self-reflection that we could probably do it in a monastery. As a church, our goal is not just to grow in our understanding of the bigger gospel story going back to last week. Our goal is also to grow in our understanding of ourselves and our deep need for the gospel in any given moment of life. Jeff Vanderstelt, his book, Gospel Fluency, he says it this way again. I would champion this book to you if you want to understand where we're going as a church. I'll help scholarship it for you if you need the financial assistance. He says this. He says, We all face struggles and battles, sometimes from enemies we can't even see. We hear lies and accusations. We struggle with temptations, and we are often deceived. We hear words that were spoken over us when we were younger, echoing in our hearts in ways that don't breathe life to our souls We look at our present situations and wish they were better. And many of us face uncertain futures that without God cause us to lead lives of anxiety, worry, and fear. We all need help because we can come up with plenty of reasons not to believe, not to hope, and not to trust in God's word and work for us. He goes on to say, we need the gospel and we need to become gospel fluent people. We need to know how to believe and speak the truths of the gospel, the good news of God in and into the everyday stuff of life. In other words, we need to know how to address the struggles of life and the everyday activities we engage in with what is true of Jesus, the truths of what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, and as a result, what is true of us as we put our faith in him. The gospel has the power to affect everything in our lives. So the question is, do you want the gospel to affect everything in your life? There's a reason that the gospel has been reduced to nothing more than a a past and, and future power, the good news that gets you into the family of God and sets you up for the afterlife. It's because experiencing change at a heart level in the present can be painful. It's called being cut to the heart for a reason, right? To be cut is redemptive, but it also requires some bleeding. But if the Bible tells us anything, it's that on the other side of crucifixion is resurrection. On the other side of every spiritual incision is a newfound peace, That the more we grow in understanding our particular need for the gospel, the more we grow in a deeper love and appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so let me ask you, what impact has the gospel had on you recently? What makes you unique in terms of your present need for the gospel? What's regularly going through your mind these days? What are you believing about God? What are you believing about his work in Jesus? What are you believing about yourself? What are you believing about other people Who or what do you look to, trust in, depend on for your worth these days? What are you hiding behind to escape a sense of inadequacy and shame? Is it the facade of religion, materialism, workaholism, and on and on we could go? How are you seeking to make atonement when you're not trusting in the atoning work of Jesus? Is it through your own self-righteousness? I'm not so bad that he had to die for me. Or is it through your own self-loathing? I'm not so loved that he was glad to die for me. Who or what do you get most excited about? Who or what has most captured your affections? Why is it that he or she or it has captured your heart? Has Jesus captured your affections? Why or why not? Calvin famously said that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are inextricably linked. It's not just about the gospel story, but the gospel in you. And so here's what I want to do. Very briefly... Last week, we had the McGinn's come up and share as it pertains to this rhythm of celebration. I'm, I'm going to, again, do something very strange, and I'm going to call myself to the stage for a second because we really do believe that transparency, transparency should happen and, and be led out by the leaders of the church. We really do. Okay, that, that is a high value, that the leaders of this church be the lead repest, repenters and confessors of the church. So I gave you my Myers-Briggs results but that's still just vague enough that it doesn't take you down into the dark parts of what I've dealt with for the last couple of months. months. Okay? All that does is tell you image, approval. It's very vague. Let me, let me explain to you the reality over the last couple of months. I'm going to give you two very quick examples of how the connection rhythm has played out in my own life. They tell you when you go through a church planting assessment process that you're probably going to want to walk away from the ministry numerous times throughout the course of your life. I wanted to walk away from the ministry this summer. I went to an Acts 29 global gathering and thought I would come out more infused with life and excitement about ministry and came face to face with the monster of suburbanism in our context and what we were really up against, and it debilitated me. I came home from that conference. I did not want to get out of bed for, for, for days and it trickled into weeks moving toward the launch of the fall. And it took me some time. I didn't know what to do with that. I couldn't connect the dots. But eventually, God in his kindness helped me to see that the gospel issue that was driving this ugliness in my life in that moment had everything to do with the self-savior complex. Because here's the deal. Going into the summer, I thought that our context was challenging but not so challenging that I couldn't come alongside Jesus as the Robin to his Batman and help to redeem this context. And all of a sudden, I found out this summer that it's a lot darker than I thought, and I deeply need the Spirit of God to raise Lazarus from the tomb, and I can't do it. All I can do is be faithful and expect God to bring about the harvest. That's all I can do. And so God was stripping a self-savior complex away from me, in the midst of the summer. Now, tell me, did anyone else in this room struggle with that? Did anyone else think about walking away from pastoral ministry this summer in light of seeing the, the giant of suburbanism and moralism for what it is? Anybody else? I think that was probably unique to me, right? Is that, is that fair to say? That's just, that's just one way that the connection rhythm works in our lives. Let me give you another one. This is today. This is present tense right now, what's going on in the heart of Jamie Vizzini, one of your pastors. Today marks the first Sunday of giving in a new fiscal budget year for our church. And what that means is that we're starting over. It doesn't matter how well we did last year. We've got to make budget this year, and it starts this Sunday And so what my heart's going to do is it's going to do some ugly dancing things quite possibly over the course of the next several weeks when Monday morning rolls around and I see what the tithes and offerings look like the previous Sunday. I deeply need the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's a control idol rooted there below the dirt that wants to control the narrative of this church and where she's going. I don't want to believe that there's a God who's so in control that he planned my salvation before the foundations of the world. That he's already established a happily ever after when he returns to set all things right. And there is nothing that anyone can do to change it because he's sovereign seated on his throne. He is the author of this story, not me. Again, faithfulness is what he calls me to. And so so here's the reality. For for the foreseeable future, here's how you can pray and you can engage me with respect to the gospel. On Sunday mornings, before I preach, you can come up and say the Spirit of God will raise people from the dead. You can tell me that. Um, you don't have to fear being encouraging when God brings about resurrecting moments in your life. Like You can tell me that because that is the gospel in, in light of the things I'm telling you. You can pray for me on Monday mornings when, when you know that I'm going to stare at the spreadsheet for our church and wrestle with things at a heart level that sometimes are nasty, vicious, and dark. That's just me. That is unique to me. Those are things that you probably don't wrestle with. But if we're honest, the gospel connects to all of our stories and we are unique and the gospel is meant to be applied. And so I invite you... to to wrestle with the implications of what we're talking about this morning and to ask yourself, do I understand how the gospel works in my life? Is there a fluency at all? If if you're struggling with that coming out of this morning, let's meet up. Let's talk about that. I would love to engage you in that. Get in a community group. That's the culture that we're going after so that you you can sit around for nine months and go, man, I ain't sharing a thing, brother, but I'll listen to all you crazy share, and maybe nine months from now I'll open my mouth for the first time. That's okay, too. Just just get infused in a culture where you're experiencing the fluency of the gospel in that way. I'm thankful for a sufficient Savior this morning so that I don't have to be one. I'm thankful for a God who's in control and is authoring the story so that I don't have to. And so when we take communion in a moment, that's what I'm celebrating. We will take the bread in just a second, dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And and as we come, I invite you to consider how the gospel matters uniquely in your life right now and to thank God for the person and work of Jesus who speaks into each and every one of those things.